1965, in a book about the evolution of humans, the media company Time Life published an image often called the March of Progress. I'm sure you've seen it. Left to right, it shows our ancestors transforming gradually from chimps into modern humans. That image has stuck with us, even though it doesn't reflect much about our actual evolutionary trajectory. These days, the image is used to satirize almost any kind of progress. Our actual story is much messier. Today, we're the only living member of our genus, the Homo in Homo sapiens, but many of our human-like ancestors lived alongside other species of hominins. We emerged as the sole living branch of what journalist Kate Wong called a luxuriant evolutionary bush. Kate is a senior editor at Scientific American and has covered the field of biological anthropology for more than two decades. She wrote a recent article to commemorate the magazine's 175th anniversary, which coincides roughly with the genesis of the field she covers. In the early days of biological anthropology, scientists seemed to find all kinds of evidence pointing to our special status. Our ancestors fashioned stone tools, hunted in sophisticated groups, spoke languages, and painted stories on cave walls. More recently, though, scientists have discovered evidence that other hominin species also could do many of these things. The origins of key human traits keep getting pushed back further in time. In the article, Kate also discusses the influence of racism on biological anthropology. In the early 20th century, some European scientists were reluctant to recognize Africa as the birthplace of humanity, and they sometimes cherry-picked evidence to fit their beliefs. Or even invented evidence outright. In one early episode, an amateur archaeologist named Charles Dawson found what appeared to be a human-like skull with the jaw of an orangutan near Piltdown in England. It caused a sensation, evidence that early Homo originated in England, until it was revealed to have been a fraudulent pairing in the 1950s. The crazy thing is that during this time, actual hominin fossils were turning up all over Africa and Asia. For example, in 1925, Raymond Dart discovered a fossil with an ape-like brain case and human-like teeth from South Africa. A real missing link from 2.8 million years ago connecting African apes to humans, which is now known as Australopithecus africanus. But it took years for the scientific establishment to recognize it as such. On this episode, Kate explains how spectacular new fossil finds and rapid advances in DNA sequencing and analysis have washed away many preconceived notions and led us, or forced us, into our modern, more nuanced view. We talk with her about some of the most important traits that humans evolved and the fuzzy line that separates us from our ancestors. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. You're listening to Big Biology. I guess let's kick off the the chat today with this new... um, article that you have coming out in the September issue of Scientific American that's called The Origins of Us. And as I read it, and I think your goal was to sort of focus on how our views of evolution have changed since Darwin first speculated about human origins more than 150 years ago. So um, can you sort of just walk us through the history of ideas about human origins and especially what I understood to be mostly a linear progression, you know, thinking going from something simple to something like us, more more of a traditional way of thinking about things versus the kind of tangled bush uh, more mindset or concept that, that's around now. Yeah, so what was really amazing um, to me when I started this this project, working on this article, was just kind of thinking about how in the entire span of the, the sort of lifetime of Scientific American, um, that's the birth of 
biological anthropology and the study of, of human origins. Um, and, you know, it doesn't really kick off until you have Darwin uh, writing his famous On the Origin of Species uh, in 1859. Um, I should back up for a second and say that Scientific American was founded in 1845. So it takes 14 years before we even get to, to Darwin. Um, and the funny thing about On the Origin of Species is that he talks about all kinds of organisms, ants and armadillos and you know birds and um, a zillion other things. And he doesn't talk about the origin of humans until the very end of the book. And he has this like, it's like a throwaway line. He just says, light will be shed on the origin of humans um, and their history or something like right, that. What a tease, right? Um, and that's it, a total <laughs> tease, right? Because that's, of course, the thing that is like everybody wants to know. Um, and, you know, I think the thinking is that he was being strategic here. He knew that um, for a Victorian society uh, in which, you know, the evolution of all species, like every species is created specially by God, and humans, of course, are the specialists of all. Um, if he were to come out in his argument, um, you know, for, for evolution by natural selection, that if he had thrown humans into the mix, people would have just been, like, too freaked out. So, I, you know, he's deliberately holding back um, from, t from talking about how humans evolved in that book. Um, and it's not until uh, 1871 that he comes out with um, some more concrete thoughts on, on human origins in his book, The Descent of Man. Um, and even then, though, when you get to The Descent of Man, you know, he's focusing in that book, which is really kind of all over the place, on just like making the case that humans have evolved like all the other organisms. Um, but the thing is, he doesn't really talk about earlier stages of humanity because there's not really any evidence for him to talk about. Now, he believes it's out there, um, but it just hasn't been discovered yet. So I think by 1871, you know, there's, you know, there's some Neanderthal remains um, there's some uh, early-ish Homo sapiens remains, but there's nothing that really uh, sort of takes us back closer to our common ancestor with, uh, with the great apes. Um, and, you know, he could see from, from his comparisons, his anatomical comparisons, that we have a lot in common with the African great apes, the gorillas and chimps. Um, but... Uh, you know, there weren't really any any sort of fossils that that showed those ape-like characteristics. Neanderthals were just too modern um, to to show that. It's, it's interesting to think about those fossils. You know, just just Neanderthal fossils that they even had access to then, because they surely had no idea about the timing of those, right? In in history, uh, and it seems like without timing information too, it'd be really hard to interpret what what they mean. Yeah, it took a while for for geologists to come up with um, the right sort of information to inform how old um, life on Earth is, and and uh, and for human fossils to to surface, it, it took a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it's not until the the early nineteen hundreds that uh, you start getting stuff. Um, coming out of South Africa in particular, that that really starts to look like okay, here are things that we can see that are kind of intermediate between apes and humans. They have a combination of those traits. Um, and 
and even at that time, um, it was hard for people to kind of accept that um, because I think specifically of the link to Africa, uh, which a lot of scholars, European scholars, weren't comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they did, I think they also just needed more fossils to, to persuade them. So, so if we just sort of fast forward to, you know, this more modern conception that we have of this uh, luxuriant bush of, you know, hominids, hominins, um, so did, did that view gra- just evolve gradually among anthropologists as we gathered more and more specimens of different kinds? Or, or was there a, a kind of singular moment when people realized that, oh, you know, it's not this linear thing. It really is a complicated bush, you know, which at some points in time had many species uh, coexisting in different parts of the world. I think, you know, for a long time, anthropologists recognized that later on in human evolution, you have multiple hominin species coexisting, um, like the Neanderthals coexisting with Homo sapiens. Um, But they kind of thought that the earlier stages uh, were pretty much that straight line. Hmm. Hmm. Um, And, you know, where like everything that was found, and there wasn't a whole, there weren't like tons and tons of new species being announced, but the ones that were uh, found, you know, seemed like they could maybe be slotted together into this, into this, uh, this line. Um, and then they started finding stuff that was clearly different and that lived at the same time, stuff that, you know, like Paranthropus, which is uh, just another genus. So Homo is our genus. Paranthropus uh, was another genus. And um, we now know that Paranthropus uh, coexisted with the early members of our own genus um, for a really long time. And this was a totally different kind of animal. Um, you would have looked at it and thought this was like an alien, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it had this huge crest on its head, um, great big teeth and jaws. This is, it was like Cuisinart, this thing. <laughs> and it's, you know, yeah. and so while our own sort of branch of the tree, Homo, was, you know, inventing all sorts of technology um, to kind of pursue a really broad diet. Um, Paranthropus seems to have evolved a number of adaptations to, um, to eating really tough foods, uh-huh. um, things like grasses and sedges. Um, and so, you know, it's just a totally different kind of, of human and one that doesn't make sense as an ancestor for us, but that really showed quite clearly that it's that there are multiple branches of humanity um, farther back in time, not just at the time of Homo sapiens and the Neanderthals. I think Marty and I were using the word hominid and hominin interchangeably, and I think you were using these more carefully. Can you just tell us real quick what the difference is between hominin and hominid? Uh, yeah, the closest uh, living relatives of of Homo sapiens are chimpanzees and bonobos. They're they're in the genus Pan, and so we have a, a common ancestor uh, with them that would have lived somewhere in the order of you know eight to twelve million years ago. I think is the current estimate. Now everything that is uh, on our line, um, you know, going from the divergence point between. Uh, chimps and and humans at that long at that last common ancestor, um, everything that's more closely related to us is called a hominin. And once upon a time, for a very long time, um, the term that was used was hominid. And then I don't know, I want to say a decade ago, but I'm not really 
totally sure about that. Uh, people started using this other word, hominin. So, uh, you know, I, it's basically humans and all of their extinct relatives going back to the last common ancestor with chimpanzees. Well, I think what we want to do is uh, circle back to some of these diversity issues and, and talk later in the conversation about, um, you know, m multiple species coexisting and how they might have interacted. Um, but, but for now, maybe let's focus on, on the emergence of uh, what we call modern homo sapiens. Um, and so if, we just, if you just had to say, what, what's the modern consensus on, on where and when modern homo sapiens emerged? Uh, what is it? And then maybe we could talk a little later about like what it even means to be modern. Uh, sure. So modern Homo sapiens makes its first appearance in, in Africa. Um, and we've seen this date get pushed back farther and farther in time. And right now the, the sort of oldest um, Homo sapiens fossils on record are around 315,000 years old. Um, they're from Morocco, so northern Africa. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I used to teach it was like 200,000 years, but now, now you know, I feel like the dates keep getting pushed back. Uh, they keep getting pushed back. And, you know, but the, the, the thing is, I mean, you were asking earlier, like, what, you know, what, what, what is modern Homo sapiens? And this is, this is a really complicated question, actually. Um, and in the case of the, the Moroccan fossils that I just mentioned, um, you know, there actually is a little bit of debate, like how modern are they? So, you know, modern Homo sapiens is, you know, is, is defined by having a really large brain on average. I think it's about 1400 cubic centimeters. Um, we have a really round skull, like a, like a basketball um, with a flat forehead and a, and a smooth brow. Um, and we have a prominent chin. Uh, we have a, a pretty lightly built skeleton, um, but you kind of have to compare that, contrast that with all of the extinct relatives in the tree. And those guys tend to have um, a sort of elongated skull, like a football, as opposed to our basketball. They've got these like big brow ridges um, and low foreheads and their, their bones that encase the, the brain are really thick. Um, and and their bodies are just kind of they're just beefier, stockier, sturdier, um, and so those are some of the traits. Um, and when you look at the the fossils from Morocco, they don't have that full suite of of traits that you know that people today mm -hmm. have. Um, you know their 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 brain case isn't quite as basketball-like. Um, so they're kind of somewhere on that fuzzy line between not modern and modern, exactly. right? And at some level, it's got to be an arbitrary judgment call about, you know, whether it's fully exactly. modern or not. Yeah, there's been a sort of long history of debate about, you know, a lot of times when people talk about modern homo sapiens, also they're talking about behavior, right? So um, for a long time, there was this idea that homo sapiens, the sort of anatomical package um, came together really early um, in Africa, originated in Africa, but it wasn't until much, much later that you get this sort of full suite of behavioral characteristics um, that characterize modern humans. So then people would talk about behaviorally modern humans 
as opposed to the earliest ones who maybe weren't doing a lot of the things that we think um, makes make people modern. So things, for example, like um, using symbols, that's like one of the main, main things. Um, and for a long time, people thought, well, you know, actually Homo sapiens for a long time, uh, you know, it's making the same kinds of tools that Neanderthals are making in other places. Um, and there's not a whole lot, lot to distinguish them. And it's not until, you know, maybe 40,000 years ago or so, uh, give or take a few thousand, that you start seeing Homo sapiens doing extra stuff, making more complicated tools, um, making art. Uh, and, you know, art in particular is, is often used as, in, uh, as a proxy for language in right. the archaeological right. record. We can't actually see language fossilized, but we can see paintings. We can see the use of uh, jewelry, of pigments for decorating your body, hmm. um, all the kinds of things that indicate that you have a, a type of human that, that is capable of, of coming up with and using symbols to communicate. Hmm. So, so how old is the oldest art that's known? So it depends on like what kind of art you're talking uh -huh. about. But another um, fuzzy line, huh? We now, yeah, another fuzzy <laughs> line. <laughs> um, you know, the, the very oldest. It's it's a it's a shell um, from Indonesia, um, and it's got this engraving on it, an engraved design. It's like a simple geometric uh, sort of zigzag design on it clearly intentionally made and pretty securely dated to about 500,000 years ago, hmm. which makes it, you know, and it's, it, and it's you know, uh, the sort of context there would be that you would assume that this is the something that Homo erectus made. Homo erectus was not supposed to do this. So this is like, this is, this <laughs> is really shock. crazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so, you know, not only do we have, uh, Neanderthals also making making complex tools, and we're and we're learning more and more about about the sort of artistic endeavors they undertook. They seem to have made jewelry. They used pigments um, uh, to, in some cases, paint their jewelry, maybe to paint their bodies. Um, and uh, there is some evidence now that they also made cave paintings, which was kind of seen as like the last the last thing separating. Um, Neanderthals from from Homo sapiens was the creation of art on cave walls, mm. um, and you know a few years ago, uh, a, a team uh, who was that was working to date images in a series of uh, caves in Spain um, found you know found evidence that some of the the images um, and these are like these are sort of geometric images they're not uh, figurative art like you might associate with a sort of ice age um the french caves like lesco right. with the beautiful horses spears going into the, mm -hmm. the woolly mammoths yeah, yeah. exactly mm -hmm. it's not that it's these it's these more like uh symbolic uh shapes um uh and they're so old that they predate the arrival of homo sapiens huh. in europe huh. so the assumption is they they have to have been neanderthal creations now who knows, like maybe somebody's going to find the evidence that Homo sapiens was in uh, Western Europe um, long enough ago that it could be the creator of these images. Maybe that'll happen down the road. But for now, 
the assumption um, by many archaeologists is that you know, Neanderthals must have made it. So it's no, you know, it's, it's just I think all of this is just to kind of underscore uh, what you said, Art, about the the fuzziness. You know, we used to have these sort of hard lines in the sand. These are things we know Homo sapiens does that nobody else does. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, Neanderthals did that <laughs> and that and that and that and oh, even Homo erectus did this little shell engraving. at least one homo erectus did this it's like the only special thing we have left is smartphones and you know maybe we're going to find smartphones in some (laughs) layer of sediment in these caves in spain right so (laughs) give it time so kate can i can i circle back to the um sort of behavioral elements of modern humans and where where did that happen and did it happen sort of in one place or was this sort of an emergence in a tiny window of time of these innovations across human populations? You know, it doesn't seem to have all emerged at once as like a part of a single, you know, adaptive package, sort of a great cognitive leap. Um, That was an idea for a while that maybe there was some kind of gene that cropped up uh, in the Homo sapiens gene pool and all of a sudden imparted us with the ability to make art and have language and have huge social networks. and that you know, has really fallen out of favor um, because it just looks like, you know, you've got different kinds of top technology popping up at different times and in different places. There's increasingly this um, folks embracing this idea that, that, that early on with Homo sapiens, you've got a bunch of um, sort of little populations uh, that are scattered around the continent and uh, periodically the climate conditions either bring them together um, or push them apart. Like when there's a, a, a sort of a, a drying of the climate, deserts expand and these little populations are pushed out to the peripheries, pushed away from each other. And then when it gets wetter and the uh, climate's more favorable, they are more easily able to sort of uh, connect and interbreed and exchange culture and technology. And, you know, this kind of, comes out of um, the the observations that when people have found early Homo sapiens fossils and the the, um, cultural materials that are associated with them, um, they don't all look the same. There's a lot of variability um, uh, from one group to the next. And so that's kind of given rise to to this idea uh, of, of having these sort of scattered smaller populations that that kind of come together and go their separate ways and come together and go their separate ways over time that's that's super interesting and i just i just flashed on something as you were talking about that uh made made a connection of something i never thought of um which is about uh so, so when I've taught about human evolution in the past in my my biology courses, I've sometimes talked about this contrast between the out of Africa hypothesis and the multi-regional evolution hypothesis. And just to sort of lay those two out super briefly, you know, out of Africa says modern Homo sapiens evolved in Africa, spread out across the world, and displaced all other hominids that were there. Multi-regional evolution says. Um, you know, modern Homo sapiens more or less evolved in Africa and then interacted a lot with these other hominids living elsewhere in the world and interbred with them and incorporated lots of their traits into our own modern genomes now. 
And it sounds almost like what you just said is that there's a kind of within Africa version of that, right? So, you know, maybe the point is not to say, you know, here, here in Africa is where modern Homo sapiens evolved, but rather there's this kind of complex network of populations that are merging and splitting over many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. And it's out of that, that kind of mess that modern Homo sapiens emerged. Is that, is that a fair comparison to draw? That's a, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I think if you go back a little bit sort of farther in time, maybe to like the, the eighties or so, um, the sort of classic out of Africa, scenario versus the the multi-regional evolution scenario the multi-regional evolution um wasn't quite emphasizing that that african con- contribution in the way that you just described mm. it was more kind of like okay you know, homo sapiens emerges from archaic populations that are found around uh, throughout the old world um and but that you know they're all sort of interconnected mm-hmm. um, through through gene flow and kind of all end up in this uh, roughly the same place but with some regional variation. Um, and what has become clear, uh, you know, largely through genetic work, but also but also through the fossil and archaeological evidence, is that you definitely get Homo sapiens appearing first. In Africa, that's it's indisputable. Um, so, sort of pure multi-regional evolutions have been excluded as an idea. I uh, think so. Yeah. I th- well, I think both pure multi-regional evolution um, and and a, the sort of strictest out of Africa scenario, which involves Homo sapiens evolving in Africa and then replacing every other har- archaic uh, human species around the globe without interbreeding with them in any sort of substantive way. Uh, I think both of those are really not supported at this point. And so the consensus is some kind of hybrid. Uh, yeah. Some kind of hybrid. And then what you were talking about when you talked about the multi-regional evolution within Africa, that is, that is a sort of newer idea that's, that's being embraced. Um, and, and yeah, that's really talking about uh, you know, th- this idea that I was alluding to before of having multiple sort of populations of Homo sapiens that split apart, kind of evolve along their own trajectories behaviorally and anatomically, um, and then come together and, you know, the sort of the, the stuff that makes us who we are today sort of coalesces from all of that diversity. You sort of mix and match traits from these different formerly separate populations and, you know, get, get presumably the best out of all of them. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's turn and talk about another trait that I find particularly fascinating, and that's the, the origins of language and the, the ability to speak. And what, what do we know now about uh, the timing of that and which lineages had it and how it happened? Yeah, so this is it's a fascinating question. It's certainly one of our, maybe our most distinctive um, behavioral characteristic as a species. Um we and, don't stop talking. you know, I kind of, we don't stop talking, <laughs> we cannot stop talking. <laughs> and, you know, other, other animals communicate, but, but human language is, is uniquely 
rich and complex. Um, and so I alluded to earlier uh, in the conversation um, this idea that that archaeologists, you know, because language doesn't preserve um, in the archaeological record, they have to kind of look for other clues to its existence, and the use of symbols is is their best sort of proxy for language ability in in our um, in our extinct predecessors and. So, I mean, I think if you look at the sum total of what's been found for Neanderthals, um, uh, you know, culturally, um, they, we now know they were doing things like decorating their bodies with, with bird feathers, um, with, with pigment. Um, there's a really, some, some really interesting evidence from, I think it's from Spain, um, that they were mixing pigments together and adding a sort of sparkly element to it. Um, and that's sort of, you know, believed to have been a kind of really blingy body paint. Yeah. Uh, Early carnival. Cosmetic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, they, they made uh, jewelry from animal teeth, um, from shells. Uh, there's an amazing discovery uh, in Croatia of, of eagle talons that have been modified so that they could have been strung together to be worn as a, as a bracelet or a necklace. Um, this is Neanderthals doing this stuff. And these are all the kinds of things that, we, that for a long time people thought that only Homo sapiens did. Um, and then there was, there, there's the evidence for cave paintings and there's a, there's a site in Gibraltar, uh, Neander, a, a sort of late Neanderthal a uh, cave site where they've kind of they've they've found a an engraved sort of hashtag symbol uh, in in the cave. Early hashtag, yeah. Neanderthal, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Neanderthals probably had language, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but but you know, I, I guess I guess one question is why did these sorts of decorations and paintings necessarily indicate? language per se right so you can think of other species that do lots of decorating like um you know bowerbirds they have they they do elaborate decorations of their nests and yet they're not talking to each other and so why does that necessarily indicate language that's a good point um i think well there's one way to sort of look at it i mean this example i think is a little more concrete although it doesn't it's it's an example from early homo sapiens this was a a cave painting that was discovered just last year, I believe, of a of a painting that that really that shows a scene. So it shows some kind of part human, part animal figures, and they look like they're hunting um, some local kind of wild, bovid, you know, cow-like animal. Um, and there you're getting the depiction of uh, of a story. Okay, and you're also seeing elements of fantasy, um, you know, with the these sort of animal human hybrid figures um, that are that are often in in sort of modern recent societies, uh, like religious mm-hmm. um, figures. So, th- you know, that's more explicit. I think there's a more explicit connection to uh, to language in in that kind of discovery. So um, I want to shift gears just a little bit, and we have touched on it, but there's a there's a portion talking about language has made me sort of want to ask you about this piece, Kate, because when I 
first started learning about human evolution, besides language, the thing that was always put forward as this is what differentiates humans is tool use. And probably one of the biggest things that I've learned in the ensuing 25, 30 years has been, yeah, not so much. <laughs> um, we have Lars Chitka. Um, he's going to be our first guest or has been, depending on when people are listening to this, um, who's done an enormous amount of work with tool use in insects. And then, of course, we've got lots and lots of tool use for a lot of different species. But in some of the things that you've written, one of the totally new things about tool use that I didn't know is how old they are in our ancestors. I mean, it, it was well before, right? There's evidence now that well before Homo sapiens used tools, other hominids were using tools. Do you want to tell us something about that? Sure. So, I mean, for a long time, you know, th there was this idea that, that tools were basically a defining trait of our branch of the family tree, um, Homo. Our genus, and it you know it was kind of how how people explained our success. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about when we had um, Homo and this other uh, really different genus of hominin called Paranthropus around at the same time. Paranthropus, kind of you know, it, this is at a time when um, you know the climate and environment are changing pretty dramatically in in Africa. Um, to drier conditions, and so you know, as as um, as that happened, Paranthropus evolves this sort of package of traits that it, uh, in its skull and jaws that make it really good at at eating really tough foods. Um, whereas Homo seems to go in a different direction um, and uh, you know pursue a really broad diet, including meat. And that as part of its uh, strategy for, for doing that, not intentionally, but this is just kind of how its, its trajectory goes, um, it, it develops tools um, that allow it to, um, you know, uh, capture and, and process um, animals and, 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 you know, butcher them uh, for food. That's sort of the, the simple take on it. Um, but then there comes, out of the blue, this discovery a few years ago. Um, from a place called Lomekli in Kenya. And it's on the western shores of Lake Turkana, um, where people have been looking for, for hominin fossils for a long time and have made several discoveries. Um, and this team goes out there. They're trying to go back to one of their old sites, or a site that was already kind of on their, on their radar that they wanted to explore. They take a wrong turn. They kind of get lost. They decide, well, this kind of looks interesting, like the kind of place that maybe could have something interesting. Let's get out and survey. And they start finding tools, and the tools seem like they're coming out of deposits that are really old. And, you know, then they undertake more prospecting, and they, you know, start taking geological samples. They try, the geologists start trying to work together, work out, um, you know, where in the sort of... Uh, layer cake of, of rocks in this area, the, the tools are, are coming from, how old those layers are. And ultimately, they determined that the tools are about a, a little more than 3.3 million years old. So previously, it's a little over 2 million. And, the, and it's all, the, every tool that you find is associated um, with, with HOMO. And now you've got them back as far as, you know, 3.33 million. Um, at Lamequi. And when you're at that depth of time, um, that's 
way older than any evidence for the genus Homo. That puts us into the realm of Australopithecus, things like Lucy, for example, um, but some, some other sort of Australopithecine species. And those are, those are different creatures from us. Those are, um, their body proportions are different, much more ape-like. They have brains that are a third of the size of our own and you know, definitely smaller, uh, still smaller than, than the earliest members of, of our own genus Homo. And it shifts it back to a time where we don't really know yet exactly what's going on climate-wise, but it doesn't, it, it, it's not, you know, part of the sort of drying trend that was thought to be driving tool evolution uh, in the genus Homo. So it just kind of explodes everything that people thought they knew about the origin of tools and how it affected um, hominin evolution. So, so Kate... I mean, to back back to the, the reason that I was asking the question, I mean, what does this say about the role of tools in the sort of specialness and the origins of Homo sapiens in particular? Um, there's a really neat part of your article that I, maybe if you can interlink these two things would be useful. You talk about the difference between low and high fidelity behavioral transmission. And so is it something about the diff- – it's not just the mechanical difficulty, as we've been talking about, of making the tools. It's, you know, how, how well you can pass on the, the you know, the, be- the best-made tool. Were Homo sapiens better at that part, or what's the current thinking? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, so a, a couple things. I think as we get farther back in time, you know, and we, and we see, okay, well, in at least one place uh, at 3.3-plus million years ago – Hominins are making stone tools. Okay, so now that probably means we need to be looking, archaeologists need to be looking a lot more, you know, in deposits that are that old to see whether they find more of this. Um, If they find more of it, that might suggest one thing. If they aren't finding a lot of it, that maybe suggests that this is a, a sort of ephemeral behavior. It's not something that sticks and becomes integral to the survival of hominins. Um, at that point in time, it's, it's an experiment. And, um, and that could be for any number of reasons. Maybe it just isn't helping them out that much, or maybe they just don't have as an effective means of transmitting, um, those, those behaviors to their next generation. Um, you know, one of the things that some archeologists have talked about is that, you know, when, you know, to learn how to make a stone tool, you, you really need someone to show you. Um, it's kind of a, you don't just like don't go just out in the yard and like start it. smashing rucks together yeah. and then like create a beautiful like, stone knife. Um, and one of the things that makes it easier to be taught um, how, how to make a sophisticated stone tool is language. Somebody telling you, not just showing you, like showing you, is a, that's, that's important, but also being able to tell you and you know, correct you. And then um, to have, uh, uh, you know, a hominin that um, is, you know, living in a, probably a bigger social group and that has um, survival of, you know, overlapping generations for a period of time. There's been really interesting work done showing that, um, you know, Homo sapiens is kind of unique in having uh, a, a lifespan that allows us to kind of overlap with our grandparents. Um, and that can impact our ability to transmit skills across generations and retain, 
you know, somebody figures out a really awesome way to make a stone tool, like that has a better chance of actually staying in the sort of knowledge ether of, of the of the species. Um, so yeah, that, that sort of fidelity of transmission of, of knowledge is, is really important. Well, can we step back right here and I want to think about these traits altogether that we've been talking about. So we've, you know, we've identified a bunch of things about, you know, the, the, the origin and timing of, of different traits that we historically thought of as sort of exclusively a homo trait. So big brains, uh, language, tool use, sociality, um, art. If, you know, if, if you think about the emergence of that, that complex of traits, um, there's the question of whether they all emerged together or separately. And I think there's also an interesting question about what what came first and what potentially drove the evolution of the other traits. So so what what drove what? That's a really good question and it's so hard to answer because I feel like at every turn there's a chicken and egg situation, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, so we know the brain is really energetically expensive. It consumes like 20% of, of your energy uh, requirements. Like it accounts for 20% of them, um, which is disproportionate to how much it weighs, you know, compared to the rest of your body. So the fact that we have large brains, the fact that you see a trend toward large brains over the course of human evolution, and we go from having like a chimp sized brain, which is like, you know, the size of a grapefruit to something three times that size. So having a large brain must have conferred some pretty significant advantages. Um, and, and I think a lot, of, a lot of it boils down to giving us greater behavioral flexibility, um, you know, just, just more of a, a buffer against the onslaught of hard times that, that, that our species and our, and our lineage um, faced over millions of years. And I mean, I think, you know, there are a few different models for, um, for what sort of like is driving this, you know, one of them is the, the, the social brain hypothesis. So this idea that, you know, that we need large brains because our form of sociality is so complex um, and we need to maintain our, our vast social networks. Um, another model sort of focuses on um, the environmental challenges of being able to, to find food and, and just kind of like stay safe. Um, so maybe that drove the evolution of large brains. Uh, and then there's this idea that cultural intelligence um, was the driving factor, you know, that, that because, uh, you know, we, we learn all of our sort of life skills socially from other people, um, as opposed to having like most of our behaviors hardwired like they are in other species. Um, and, and that's that sort of need to acquire those skills, you know, to, you know, to, to go out and find enough food in the world to subsist on um, and to learn those through, through social learning, that maybe that was the driver. So you've got these models. I don't know. I mean, I think that they're not like mutually exclusive models and that there's ways for like 
all these things to kind of feed into it. Yeah, and maybe my question, you know, is poorly posed, right? Maybe it's not like one thing drove the other, but that there was just sort of reciprocal relationships among all of these all of these traits that were kind of self-reinforcing over time. Yeah, I think that maybe is a little closer to, to my sort of read on it. You know, it's like, you know, if we try to ask the question, is brain evolution like a cause or a consequence of something like language? Um, you know, it's, I mean, it's really hard to unpack it, but if you see it as like Tom Shuneman, um, who, who's a sort of brain evolution expert, uh, an American brain evolution expert, has kind of described it as like, you know, you get an increase in brain size and that paves the way for the evolution of language by allowing the you know, brain to evolve different sort of regions that have specializations. And that it also, you know, paved the way for, for us to have like this more complex um, sociality. Um, and that that, like that, that sort of heightened... Um, complexity of sociality in turn makes language a very useful thing to have. Um, and so, you know, that ultimately you have a, a scenario where the, the brain and language kind of like co-evolve and adapt to each other. And that, that I mean, that makes sense to me, but, you know, um, it, it's really, it's like I said, it's really tough because because of all this chicken and egg business. Sure. Um, and, and lack but, of you know, evidence. I think if you... Yeah. Yeah, lack of evidence. I mean, but one, and difficulty yeah, to ever yeah. get evidence. Exactly. Well, but there is one sort of thing that you can look at, which I think is interesting, which is at what point do we see hominins having potentially access to a diet that is high enough in quality, by which I mean like provides enough calories to fuel a larger brain? Because it, 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 it can't be bigger if you can't like put the gas in the tank, right? Mm -hmm. So can't pay for it. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and there's indications that, that that's happening, you know, like around 2 million years ago, things are, things are changing and you're mm -hmm. getting this like an uptick, um, in, in brain size. And you're seeing, um, that, that humans are exploiting more animal foods. Um, there's an argument that Richard Wrangham at Harvard has, um, put forth, which is that cooking becomes a thing that we do that makes um, it gives us access to to more calories from food. It kind of unlocks their their potential a little bit more. You don't lose everything to to roughage. And, and by this, you mean like discovery of fire and sort of extensive use of fire to break down your food yeah. before you eat it. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Exactly. Yep. Um, so those are like fun ways of of getting at that. Um, just kind of trying to establish when in time we might have been able to pay for that bigger brain. Um, but mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, can't tell you the whole story, but yeah, it's not sure. <laughs> okay. So um, everything that we've been talking to for the last few minutes in conjunction with some of the things that we discussed before, it's a little bit weird to me because in one sense, we're sort of saying that this constellation of traits that rolls up under something called behavioral flexibility is what probably had some value to allowing homo sapiens to be so successful. And yet, we talked about 3.3 million year old tools. We talked about Neanderthals with probably language and definitely art. So are we really special or were we ridiculously lucky or both? <laughs> What's the current consensus or what Kate Wong's thoughts? 
I, there's never consensus. In- <laughs> of course not. <laughs> not in science. That's what we do. Not about this. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I think it's, I think it's kind of both. I mean, you know, it just seems to me like there's so many experiments happening over a really long period of time. And by the time you get to Homo sapiens, you've got the Neanderthals, you've got Denisovans, you've got other creatures running around in different parts of the world. Um, and some of them, you know, we're not the only ones who are developing uh, bigger brains and better technology and, um, you know, artistic expression, symbolic expression. Um, and so, you know, what I've had several paleoanthropologists say to me is, well, you know, maybe Homo sapiens is just a little bit better. Just so it gets to that, you know, whatever that sort of line is over which you become like the most successful one. They just, they just get there faster. And, you know, and that, you know, that makes a certain amount of sense to me. But I think, you know, if we get back to this idea of, of African multi-regionalism, um, and this idea of, of interbreeding. You know, Homo sapiens in that sense could be considered lucky because, you know, they've got their circumstances in Africa that, that, that are kind of creating um, all sorts of opportunities to, uh, for, for adaptation to a bunch of different kinds of circumstances. And then they, they start spreading out of Africa and they meet up with these other these archaic humans that are already out in these other parts of the world. So the Neanderthals in Europe, uh, the Denisovans in Asia, uh, probably other things that we don't even know about yet, other creatures. And we know that they were interbreeding, right? Because like we were saying at the beginning of the episode, uh, we carry today, people today carry DNA from um, from ancient interbreeding between early Homo sapiens and Neanderthals and Denisovans and other archaic humans. So maybe, um, you know, as Homo sapiens is moving out and interbreeding, they're actually picking up beneficial um, genes and potentially technology from these other humans that are already really well adapted to uh, Europe in the case of Neanderthals and Asia in the case of Denisovans. And that introduces, you know, very quickly into the Homo sapiens um, gene pool and into their behavioral repertoire, potentially, um, ways of being able to c- cope with uh, this, this new world that they're entering. So they have the advantage both of everything that they've kind of... Um, gleaned from their time in, in Africa and this, this new sort of influx of genes and, and cultural practices um, when they got to the rest of the world. And that maybe that's the sort of magic combination that helps them succeed. Maybe we are um, where we are today, the, the last hominin standing because of those encounters with our archaic relatives. We wanted to talk briefly about your writing process and just, you know, how did you get interested in this area 
broadly, and then how do you approach your choice of topics? I mean, it must take an enormously long time to put together one of these articles. So I know that's not a lightly made decision. <laughs> um, you know, when I was um, when I was in college, I, I started off on a on a pre med track, and I really messed up. And at some point, you know, halfway into it, I was like acing all of my biology classes and failing, literally failing chemistry and physics. And things got so bad that I actually got kicked out of school. And I looked I, you know, I had to like sit down and really kind of think hard about what to do. And I, and I finally realized like, I didn't really want to be a doctor and I really did love biology and there had to be something else I could do that was, you know, um, going to involve getting, doing a major in the stuff I really loved. And I realized I could get a degree in biological anthropology and zoology, which were, you know, things I adored. And so I went back, I finished up, I got my degree um, in, in that area. And when I was done, I was so in love with it. I thought, wow, maybe I want to do a PhD. Like that would be amazing, but that's going to be a pretty big commitment. So maybe I better think that through. And so I, you know, went and I had to get a job and while I thought things through. And um, that job turned out to be uh, as a fact checker and photo researcher at Scientific American um, 23 years ago. And, uh, you know, a few months into that, I thought, gosh, I would really like to write about something, you know, like human origins-ish. And I had heard there was a conference coming up, the American Association of Physical Anthropologists, and I had always wanted to go to that um, as an undergraduate and never, never did. Um, and I thought, well, why don't I go to that and see if I can find a story? And so I went and I came back with a story on a Miocene ape called Morotopithecus. And I pitched it to the news editor and he said, OK. And I wrote it in my spare time because that's not what they were paying me to do. Um, so I spent a, a month of nights and weekends, like interviewing a thousand people and writing up so many notes. It's kind of crazy. I could have written a book about Moronopithecus <laughs> and by the end of it, you know, I had a little news story, um, on it and that was kind of the beginning. And, and I really, you know, that was, that's when the bug bit me. I was like, Oh, like writing was, which was a thing that I had always kind of been told I was good at, but didn't think I wanted to do anything with professionally when I realized that I could actually do that and combine it with my interests, my, you know, in, in this particular field of science, you know, that, that's, that was like the light went off and I was like, oh, I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. And there wasn't anyone at the magazine covering that at the time. So I was able to kind of make a little niche for myself. But how do you write your articles now? Like what, what's the process and, you know, how extensive is it? How long does it take? What do you do? I mean, so the, the first part is just finding something that I think is absolutely fascinating and that's new and that I can convince my colleagues, um, you know, we should be doing a, a, a big article on. And then once that's kind of in the bag, then I go through the really fun part, which is the reporting and talking to lots of people, you know, sometimes getting to go and hang out in the field or visit a lab and like see them in action and, you know, just gather all the string I can, um, and and then and then like there's the hell phase that is fueled entirely by self-loathing and involves lots of like you know pr procrastinating baking and, yeah. and like swearing and crying and put the brain um, nucleus to work it's yeah. ugly <laughs> 
it's not a great process, my process, but you know, I mean, ultimately I get there, so I guess it's okay, but yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of chaotic. Um, and I, you know, I tend to be somebody who I don't spend a lot of time like on the front end developing outlines and um, that kind of thing. I really just yeah. kind of get all the information, stew on it for a while and freak out that I'm not like writing anything. And then it all just kind of comes out. Um, hmm. And I write it through, like all the way through. So, so just from say conception conception of an article to the end, how how long does it take? Well, it really depends. Um, sometimes I can do it something really fast. You know, when I'm writing something for the the print magazine, where you know we're working, those deadlines are just it's a different kind of schedule. So we tend to to choose those stories um, pretty far out. It might be a year between when I propose it and when it actually runs in the magazine. Um, but, you know, sometimes I'm writing stories that, that are just for online or that are go online first and then get put into the magazine. And those can be really fast turnaround. Um, you know, that might be a week or two um, that, that where I do those. So it, it really kind of depends. It really run the gamut. Human evolution isn't only about deep history. A 2010 study in the journal Science found evidence that a gene helpful for living at high altitudes spread rapidly since people colonized the Tibetan Plateau in the last 3,000 years. And a 2006 study in Nature Genetics found that a mutation allowing adults to digest milk sugars swept through European populations starting about 7,000 years ago. Radical changes of the past several hundred years in where we live, what we eat, and how we interact with our surroundings means that human populations are still evolving. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. If you love the podcast, we encourage you to make a donation to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbio. You can make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. You can also help the podcast by telling your friends about us over social media. Tag us on your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook feeds. On the next episode of Big Biology, we talk with Greta Binford, a biologist at Lewis and Clark College who studies the evolution of spider venoms. We basically... Um, started with the brown recluse and tried to walk our way out the tree of life to find the closest relatives that didn't have that toxin in their venom um, to try to figure out, okay, you know, we know the brown recluse can cause these, these types of damage when they bite, but not all spiders do. So somewhere in the history of spiders, there was this evolutionary event that turned on this toxin um, as a venom toxin. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Big Bio interns Ajinkia Dahake, Dana Baxter, Jordan Greer, and Ruth Demery manage our social media accounts and help us produce the show. And thanks to Steve Lane, as always, for help with the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear.